Ephesians chapter 6. I hate to disappoint you, I only have one text for this message, Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 10 through 17. I want to remind you, we covered verses 10 through 12 last week, what we called part 1 of the spiritual warfare message, and now part 2 is today. So we'll start again at verse 10, Ephesians 6. Starting at verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In all sorts of facets of life, we have to be prepared in order to do the task at hand. Some of you all know that recently I've had the privilege of coaching Maya's softball team at Peoria Christian Center. It's, it's been a fun little bonding experience. I've enjoyed the coaching. I think Maya has even enjoyed surprisingly being in some situation where her dad has authority and she has to listen to him. It's been a nice change of pace. <laughs> but part of the goal when you play is move the girls around to different positions. But I know that Maya likes to catch. And I think part of that is the sort of extra equipment that comes with the job. If you're going to catch fast pitch softball, you have to have on your, your cleats a catcher's mask, a chest protector. You've got to have the glove, the, the leg guards, all of its necessary equipment if you're going to be successful. By the time she's ready to catch, she looks like a little warrior going out there behind the plate. As we continue in the text this morning, the Apostle Paul is describing that sort of thing. He describes putting on the whole armor of God in detail. And the the message, again, is simple. You, You need to be prepared with the necessary equipment if you are going to succeed in the task at hand. To relay that message, Paul can't talk about, uh, you know, softball catchers. This is, would have been foreign to them. He uses something that's a common sight for the readers of this letter in Ephesus. He uses the imagery of Roman soldiers preparing for battle. This is not a sight that's common to us. And as a result, some folks think that this section of scripture, it, it's sort of, it's lost its impact. It needs to, a little bit of an update. I guess we could use updated language to make some of, 
you know, modern illustrations in order to try to make the same point, right? Stand by to protect yourself with the patriot missiles of righteousness or advance forward with the drone strike of the gospel, always carrying the M16 of the Spirit. But that's not how Scripture works. When we see and seek for the meaning of Scripture, we want to know what it meant in its historical context. What did it mean to the people who first read these words? In that case, it means we have to know a little bit about how Roman infantry in the first century prepared themselves for battle. And so I'll spend a little bit of time this morning trying to fill that gap. The imagery is ancient, but the lesson is timeless. Christians today, just like those in Ephesus, must utilize the the necessary equipment if we're going to succeed in the battle at hand. Now, some of y'all have asked whether I planned to try to coincide this with the upcoming week of Vacation Bible School, which we're doing Keepers of the Kingdom, and this is essentially the, the text that all of that derives from, and I didn't plan that. As always, God knows what He's doing. Seldom do I know what I'm doing. God always knows what He's doing. It's a display of God's providence that we're getting to this text just before we use this text during VBS, but I've read the VBS material. I like how it uses it. But I want you to see one thing, that this passage we call the armor of God passage might really ought to be called the standing firm passage. Paul does twice in what we've read, tell the readers to put on the whole armor of God, but he also goes on to explain the purpose of putting on the whole armor of God. Listen, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, you'll also be able to stand. And verse 14, stand therefore. Right? This idea of standing or withstanding or standing firm against the enemy's attacks, that's the focus of this text. The individual members of the church at Ephesus are all expected to individually prepare themselves for the spiritual warfare they're facing so that collectively they can stand together or stand firm together resisting the onslaught of wickedness that Paul says is invariably going to come it is standing or standing firm that's the focus of this text and Paul actually uses the same word as James uses in James 4 7 when he says resist the devil and he will flee from you that is stand firm against the attack and he is going to retreat or that Peter uses in 1 Peter, Peter 5 when he pictures Satan as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour and he says we are to resist steadfast in the faith. In other words, stand firm, steadfast in the faith. The church at Ephesus 
needs to be prepared with God's armor and God's strength in order to stand firm individually and collectively against the schemes and attacks of Satan. I don't want you to miss that. This is a collective stand that Paul's describing here. Paul uses the word brethren or brothers up in verse 10. And he says that ye in verse 11. That's the plural, you. You all may be able to stand. And the same in verse 13, that you all may be able to withstand, or to stand firm in the evil day. And so here's the imagery. Paul pictures the church at Ephesus as if it is a legion of Roman soldiers preparing themselves for a defensive battle against the enemy together. And, and as, it's, as it's really written, it's, it's like they're in the middle of getting dressed. They're in the middle of putting on this armor, of these six pieces of the armor of God that the Apostle Paul outlines. He writes about the first three as if they're already on in verses 14 and 15. Right, Your loins are girt about with truth. You have the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The fourth piece of armor in verse 16 is written as if it is in process. You are taking up the shield of faith. And then the final two in verse 17 is like Paul saying, and don't forget those. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. So let's spend a little time this morning understanding why Paul has written this the way that he has and what he means by each one of these pieces of the armor of God. What does it mean for modern Christians engaged in the same spiritual warfare to stand against the forces of evil, to stand firm against spiritual wickedness in God's armor? Well, first off, he references the belt of truth in verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, there was not anything particularly fancy about the non-armor portion of a Roman soldier's clothing. Underneath it all, they were basically wearing this huge rectangular piece of cloth with uh, holes cut out for their arms and their head. This tunic that they wore was more like a, a massive poncho than it was anything else. But you can imagine in hand-to-hand combat or close quarters battle how a, a loose tunic could prove to be dangerous. It could get in your way. It could get caught in the wrong place. It could get stepped on by yourself or your fellow soldier or even your enemy. And so in order to secure that big tunic, the soldiers would gird themselves. They would would gather up the material and secure it close to them using a heavy leather belt. This wasn't just an accessory to try to hold up your pants. It is a vital piece of what a soldier would put on. Gathering together all that excess material, and even later the belt's going to help to hold on the, the sheath that holds their sword. Right? The Apostle Paul compares that belt to the truth. Right? 
having your loins gird about with truth. There's, there's two potential ways that Paul might mean that we're to have on a belt of truth. First off, there is the possibility that he means we need to live lives that are undergird by truthfulness. For a soldier, that belt is basically what held everything together. Even though once all his armor on, that belt's not really exposed. It's sort of hidden underneath, enabling him to act. Perhaps, Paul means, truth is like that. And if that's what he means, he might be getting the idea from Psalm 51, verse 6, which says that God desires truth in the inward parts, right? There has to be truth inside, underneath this all. Today, we would talk about that idea using the term integrity. A lack of basic integrity hampers a Christian at every turn. And, and the time invariably comes where there's a, this lack of integrity is also going to prove to be a threat to those around them. The second way that Paul might mean this is truth in the sense of doctrinal truth, having doctrinal truth close to us and holding everything together. And I actually, I think this is more likely, as Paul has already established in this letter, you can look back at chapter 4, verse 21, he says, the truth is in Jesus. So what we believe about who Jesus is and what we are and what Jesus has done for us, our standing in him, being grounded in that truth prevents us from being impeded or being tripped up in moments of spiritual challenges and assault. You can try to put on all the rest of this armor he's about to describe, but underneath it all, if you are not confident in the truth of the Lord Jesus, everything else is going to come apart. Doctrinal truth is the foundation of our lives, and we must be infused with it. So think about this. Just like Paul's letters all starts with, here's doctrinal truth, and then moves on to, here's the practical way to live, right? What we believe determines how we behave. And before you can succeed in spiritual battle, the truth must be close to you and what holds everything together. To compromise on truth is to destroy our own foundation and so compromising on truth will invariably lead to our defeat as everything else falls apart. Put on the belt of truth. Make sure truth is underneath it all, holding everything together. Second, he describes the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. Having on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul is again likely drawing on Old Testament language as Isaiah 59 verse 7 describes Yahweh himself putting on righteousness like a, a breastplate. This, this article of armor was a sleeveless, can I just point out it's sleeveless? It's kind of like a vest, just saying. 
It, but it was a sleeveless piece of metal or sometimes many numerous pieces of metal formed together in order to protect your torso from arrows and swords and, and spears. The, the armor of God that protects your heart is the breastplate of righteousness. Again, we need to think of how Paul means this because there's a, a couple of possibilities. The Bible actually speaks of righteousness in, in two different ways. First, there is positional righteousness, which we would describe as, this is our righteousness described as our standing with, before God. When we repent of our sins, trust the Lord Jesus as Savior, His righteousness is placed on our account. And immediately, although we are still all practicing sinners, we have positional righteousness with God because God sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We stand righteous before his throne through the shed blood and righteous life of our Savior. That is the principle and precious reality of Christian life. And yet, I don't think that Paul intends this breastplate of righteousness as that kind of positional righteousness in Jesus. He's talking to the church at Ephesus, after all, with the understanding that they, he says, they have been seated together with the Lord Jesus in heavenly places, right? Positional righteousness is theirs. There's no question about whether or not they're going to take it up. They are soldiers in the Lord's army. So I don't think he's telling them to put that on. He assumes they have that. He's telling them something else. The other way the Bible speaks of righteousness is we'll call it practical righteousness. Obedience to the word and growth in godliness. Practical righteousness is that process of being sanctified, being slowly conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus in the way that we think and in the way that we live, right? We are constantly advancing in this walk of faith so that we are growing in Christ and we're putting sin behind us. Practical righteousness is when we put away sin and embrace a kind of obedient, righteous, and holy living that God demands. I think that is what Paul intends here. Practical righteousness is what we, is so desperately needed to be employed as part of the armor of God that's provided to us. Picture the imagery that Paul's using here. This Roman breastplate, this, this piece of armor meant to guard the torso of a soldier. It's not an optional piece of equipment. Just imagine, uh, picture in your mind, a, a group of Roman soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder, facing the enemy. Their goal is to maintain that line. Don't, don't get out of position. Don't allow that line to become fractured by the onslaught of the enemy that's, that's coming and pressing in on them. And then some enemy recognized, they take note of the fact that one of the members of that line in front of them is not wearing the armor that protects their torso. They're unprotected because they don't have on this breastplate. No armor for their body. What's going to happen? 
Where do the swords aim? Where do the spears aim? Where do arrows get shot? If you're not living in practical righteousness, then you are marking yourself as a target for our enemy. And in that process, you're not only marking yourself as a target, you are giving the enemy a weak point in order to uh, attack those who are standing shoulder to shoulder with you. Not living in obedience and holiness and righteousness is giving Satan an entry point into your life as well as a weak point to attack all of those in the church who are standing as a whole. Just look back a couple of chapters at chapter 4 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 27. Paul says, Neither give place to the devil. Right? An opportunity. An advantage. Don't give him an advantage or an opportunity. Well, how might we give place to the devil? What is that we could do that's going to give Satan an opportunity, that's going to give our enemy an advantage? Well, you can look all around what Paul says there in verse 27 and verse 25. We're doing it if we don't speak the truth. In verse 26, if we maintain unrighteous anger after it. In verse 28, if we continue in our sins of the past like stealing or in verse 29 if our mouths speak unwholesome words bent on tearing others down or in verse 31 bitterness wrath rage fighting slander malice living in obedience and holiness right practical righteousness is a non-optional part of the armor of god it is essential living in righteousness is not just something that you do When your heart is right, living in righteousness is like the breastplate that guards your heart against attacks. And if you treat it like it's optional, then you're entering the battle without a breastplate. You're not only making yourself an easy target, you're ultimately endangering those who are called to stand their ground beside you. Third, the shoes of the gospel. In verse 15, it says, and have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers were famous for their footwear. Roman boots allowed them to stand firm against attack, to, to march double time into battle, to, to cross the the Roman Empire, to close ranks with their fellow soldiers. The footwear was this major strategical advantage for the organized Roman army against their disorganized enemies. The Romans used these open boots called caligae, hardened leather, sandal-like boots with hobnails, metal studs in the sole, It created a grip similar to uh, modern athletic cleats. They were great for comfort. They were great for protection, but even more importantly, for traction. 
And if you can actually just conjure in your mind what it must have sounded like for a Roman legion to be marching down the road, it is said to have had a specific sound from any other army because of these Caligai boots. Roman legionaries would march from one end of the known world to the other. They built roads where they needed to go, and then the boots took them off the roads where they couldn't build roads. They were famous for going to dark, faraway corners of the world. There was really nowhere they wouldn't go. So Paul's again drawing on that imagery and on the Old Testament. Isaiah 52, verse 7, you know this verse, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Right? This good news or good tidings, that's, that's all the gospel is. Gospel means good news. And so Paul says here, we have on our gospel shoes, but more than that, he talks about it being the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is, we should be prepared and ready to go and share this good news, this gospel of peace to those around us. Does it seem strange to you that as Paul is giving this picture of battle and warfare, that right in the middle of it, he's talking about the good news of peace. Listen, when Satan and his demonic horde launch some assault against the assembled saints of God, there is always good news, right? There is always the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, has come and live the sinless life, died in the place of sinners so that all who repent of their sins and trust him for salvation have eternal life with him because he rose from the dead after three days to promise and and to secure eternal life for all who believe. There's good news that we have found peace with God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and that all of those who will come to the Lord Jesus for salvation can find peace with God. We have to be prepared with this gospel of peace, the good news of peace for all those deceived people who Satan is using as a tool in this battle. So like Roman soldiers, we're to be on the march, we're to be committed and prepared to to share the gospel wherever God takes us. And the sound of our marching into the dark corners of this world is not the sort of threatening thunder of those Roman hobnailed Caligai boots, right? That was the noise of doom. What we're bringing is this beautiful sound of being prepared to declare the gospel of peace. And that gospel, that good news of Jesus... That is what spells doom to our enemy because it declares victory in the Lord Jesus and it affirms to everyone who believes, your God reigns. This is good news. There's peace through Jesus. The fourth part of the armor of God is the shield of faith. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith 
you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. When you read Shield of Faith, I'm not sure what kind of shield comes into your mind. There were, there were two different shields that were common to Roman legionaries. There was one that was the, the smaller, like round or a little bit oval shield that you might picture in uh, being with a, a gladiator as they're dueling in hand-to-hand combat. That kind of shield was helpful for individual battle, for, like I said, hand-to-hand combat, because it's, it's quite mobile, right? You can swing it around. The other kind of shield was a much larger rectangular shield. It's about two and a half feet wide, stood over four feet high, roughly the size of a refrigerator door, and just about that heavy. It would be strapped onto your arm to be held into place. That larger shield is what Paul's describing here is taking the the shield of faith. It was designed to be used in connection with other soldiers around you that also had the same kind of shield. It would be used to withstand, you know, projectile attacks, right? So you can picture they all have this shield and they hold the shield in front of them so that in the front line, the, the soldiers are creating essentially this solid wall of wood that's blocking from projectile attacks. And then in the ranks behind them, those shields, instead of being held in front, were arranged and held up over the head. So they're essentially creating a kind of roof of solid wood that's protecting against attacks. That's what Paul has in mind here, is the shield of faith. And incidentally, Paul also knows his military history, because just like today... What would happen is you'd have a technological advance in one area of warfare and it would soon get met and, and opposed with a technological advance on the other side. And so for a time, enemies would he- hurl their spears and shoot arrows at a Roman shield wall to no avail. Then somebody deci- ingeniously decided, hey, why don't we light these things on fire and shoot fiery projectiles at them and start the shields on fire. And so in response, the Romans started dipping their shields in water before battle. You can imagine, you know, adding some more weight to that thing, but it was effective until somebody on the other side thought, well, you know what, if we don't just light these things on fire, if we attach sort of this this tarry pitch to the projectile, it's going to persist even when it hits a wet shield and it's going to start that thing on fire. So Romans began covering their shield with, with leather in addition to, to having them be wet. And by doing that, they would resist those burning arrows and spears that were getting thrown. That's the fiery darts of Paul's illustration here. Burning arrows. But I want you to note who these burning arrows are coming from. It is not just the wicked, right? It should be the wicked one or the evil one. The wording in Greek is tu paneru. It is the wicked one. That's incidentally also the wording in the model prayer. 
when the Lord Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, should be the wicked one or the evil one. When Satan attacks, he does not always tell you that it's coming before it comes. Fiery arrows are launched from a distance and they strike unexpectedly. And presumably, these fiery darts that Paul pictures come in the form of trials and temptation to sin. Sin seeks to pierce your Christian defenses and then sort of explode into flames of lust and and pride and anger and contempt. And when temptation to sin seeks to hit its mark, setting your mind on fire with wicked desires, only faith is able and adequate to be a shield to extinguish the attacks from the evil one. Faith is total reliance and complete confidence in God. The Old Testament Psalms of faith consistently present Yahweh as a strong shield, or in the King James Version, a buckler. It means shield for those who have faith in him. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, his ways are perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength. And my shield, my heart trusts in him and I'm helped. Or Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. This is the idea of a shield of faith, this complete trust, this total reliance on God. When the very first fiery dart from Satan was launched in Genesis 3, Eve's heart was set aflame because instead of trusting God, she believed the lie that God would withhold from her something that was good for her. And when the burning arrows of temptation strike you, and they will, are you going to believe the lie that some sin is going to be more satisfying than obedience to God Or will you remember the Lord Jesus, believe in the promises of God in faith, that through him we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ? Paul's already told us in this letter. You need that shield of faith. Fifth, verse 17, is take the helmet of salvation. Roman helmets were constructed of either strong iron or sometimes bronze. They would include these pieces like cheek guards that came down to protect the soldier's face. They were heavy enough that they actually had to be lined with either sponge or cloth or sometimes thick leather in order to make the weight of the helmet reasonable to bear. Obviously, the goal of the helmet was to protect and prevent a deadly blow that could come quickly at any moment in battle from a a sword or a, a battle axe. Paul says, like armor covering your head, salvation provided through the Lord Jesus protects us from the death blow of the enemy. This is the armor of God 
issued to you to protect your eternal soul, the salvation provided through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Again, Paul might be alluding to the Old Testament passages. Isaiah 59, 17 pictures the divine warrior with a, a helmet of salvation on his head. But this, Paul says, is actually provided to us. And so maybe he's thinking of Psalm 140, verse 7, which says, O Yahweh, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Salvation comes through the Lord Jesus alone. And it's been provided for us because, listen, the victory is already his. It's been said by many others that that a Christian does not fight for victory. A Christian fights as one who has victory already through the Lord Jesus. Our security in that salvation is like an unassailable, impenetrable helmet giving soldiers every confidence in battle. But our confidence in here, here is not just limited to what the Lord Jesus has done, but it's also that we know what he will do for us for his glory. Listen, through the salvation provided by the Lord Jesus, we have been saved from the penalty of sins in our past, from the power of sin in the present, and we fully expect to be saved from even the very presence of sin in the future when we are united with him for eternity. I think this is Paul's intention because, if you didn't know this, Ephesians 6 is not the only place where Paul uses this illustration of the armor of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he uses that armor illustration again, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 8 and 9, putting on as a helmet the hope of salvation, the confident expectation of salvation. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Part of this helmet of salvation is not just knowing what the Lord Jesus has done. It is also the confident expectation of knowing salvation is also what he will do. We will be saved from the very presence of sin with him for eternity. At the end of verse 17, you have the sixth and final piece of the armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It is often noted that the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive device that can be wielded as a weapon in spiritual warfare. But remember, a sword is not only good as an offensive weapon. A sword can be used as a defense to, you know, to deflect the blows of the enemy. The Lord Jesus himself left us a wonderful example of using the word of God as a defense when Satan tempted him to sin. Every temptation was just swatted away by the Lord Jesus using the word of God as his defense. As it is written, he said three times, as it is written, and then used the sword of the Spirit as his defense against Satan. We can do the same. We must not be afraid 
to use Scripture against any opinion, ideology, philosophy, or worldview that confronts us with a temptation or places itself into contention with the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is there to defend us against error. It's there to defend us against the attacks from Satan. But it is also there to use as an offensive and aggressive tool in the battle for truth. The writer of Hebrews famously describes God's word in Hebrews 4 verse 12 as being living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing uh, of the soul and the spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That is, God's word is alive and it is active and it's two-edged so that there is, there is no part of this sword of the spirit that is dull. There is no part of this which cannot be used and wielded to do its job and like any good sword, like that, not... I'm not an expert at, at, at sword craft, but I think what you do with a sword is you got a couple of options. You either stab or you hack, right? I mean, I don't know what else you do with it. And so the writer of Hebrews uses the words pierce and divide, right? This sword is used to hack and to stab. It's able to reach, he says, into the deepest parts of people, separating things that seem inseparable even to the extent of making it clear the difference between what your mind thinks and what your heart desires. The great difference between a Roman soldier's sword and ours is there is no power in us to wield this. Right? You remember up in verse 10, you need God's strength. You need his mighty power. And this sword, it's not yours. It's the sword of the Spirit. So a Roman soldier's success would be based on his own strength and his own skill. But Paul says this sword of the Spirit is this this Holy Spirit-inspired word is the weapon that's to be used. It was inspired by the Spirit. It's The source is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the animating influence behind the Word. It's the the Spirit of God which takes the Word of God and uses it to to make children of God. Y'all, if you want to see victory in the spiritual battle, you have to be armed with the Word of God. Read it. Meditate on it. Know it. Rely on it. Repeat it to others. Train yourself with this sword. It's there for your defense. And it's the only thing we have to go on offense. When you're tempted to doubt God's goodness or to compromise the gospel of Jesus or to neglect your spiritual duties or rely on your own wisdom for what's right and what's wrong, we need to instead turn and answer just like the Lord Jesus did. It is written. Don't enter this battle without your sword. The word of God is there to defend us from error and to liberate others from deception. 
don't dull its edge by trying to make excuses for what it says. You might as well go into battle armed with a feather duster if you're not going to rely on the sword of the Spirit. So after, after having gone through all this armor of God, according to Paul's description, let's just finish for a, a moment by noting that there seems to be something missing. There's protection for every piece of the Christian soldier's body except his back. In Paul's description of the armor of God, there is nothing there to protect the Christian soldier's back. The back is exposed. It is unprotected. But I think Paul intends a lesson even by what he refused to say. And the lesson is this. Retreat is not an option. As we fight in this battle from a position of victory through Jesus, marching under the orders of King Jesus, he is never going to sound retreat. Lots of armies have that, you know, through history, that tune or that drumbeat that says, okay, you've got to run. We don't even have a song for that. Retreat is not something we're ever called to do. And so that's part of the point of this whole section, right? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, put on the whole armor of God that so you may be able to withstand, to stand firm in the evil day. And having done all, you'll be able to stand firm. Or verse 14, stand therefore. For the church at Ephesus, this spiritual warfare is theirs, to, their, you know, stand your ground moment. And they had to stand together. Each of them had to take the armor of God, right? Locking shields with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Digging, digging the cleats of their boots into the dirt for traction, ready to withstand everything that's coming. Every church in history is called to take this stand. Our church is called to take this stand. The enemy is real. And he's strong, and he's dangerous, and if you're not dressed in the armor of God, then you have made yourself a target for the enemy, and it's a threat to every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are standing on the line with you. But surrender's not an option. Never for a moment doubt that victory is ours because we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, through Christ alone. We're victorious through him. We give thanks to God who always gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided us this armor. He's instructed us with this armor. He says, you have everything you need. Stand firm.